Good morning. It's good to see you all. I hope that you are uh, all awake. Uh, we are, I've been talking to several folks, and I think we're all run, running on fumes right now. Uh, but it's been a great time, hasn't it? It's uh, good to be together. Uh, enjoy being with you, and uh, I know you're having a good time at camp. And uh, it's hard to believe it's coming to a close here pretty soon, but we have a few more days. So looking forward to it and uh, looking what God's going to do. And just grateful that uh, we can be with Him today. He is with us always, but we need to be with Him. Yes? Uh, just because He is with us does not mean that we're aware. So we have to uh, make sure that we are with Him today uh, as we do our thing. All right, well, as you notice, uh, I was uh, going through my, my material last night and had a very strong uh, feeling that this is not what we're supposed to do. And so the Lord led me to a different chapter. So if you read chapter 43, verses 1 through 7, like you're supposed to, um, we're not going to do that. We're actually moving over to chapter 55, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 13. I'm not sure why, but perhaps somebody here needs, needs this chapter. Uh, but I just try to do what God leads me to do. And so... Uh, just redid everything, and uh, we're going to, to, to go through Isaiah 55 today. But first, we'll talk about what prophecy is in the Old Testament and why the prophets were sent in the first place. So let me take another drink here. <clears throat> so anything we need to pray about today? Everyone okay? Good. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this day. I thank you, God, for your presence with us. Thank you, God, that you love us just the way we are. And Lord, it just amazes me every day, and I talk about it every day in my own heart. You know, Lord, you know me better than I know myself. You know everything about me, and you love me anyway. And Lord, we're grateful for that love that will not let go, who believes that we have great potential within us if we will just surrender to you. So Lord, I pray that you'll help us today to, to realize uh, the issues that the Israelites had are the same issues we also are tempted with every day. That even as believers in Jesus Christ, there's a sense of chosenness that, that perhaps gives us a little sense of superiority or a sense of uh, otherness. And Lord, I pray you'll help us today to, to see what the prophets were trying to say. And then what Isaiah is saying about in that day, in that day when the, uh, the Messiah comes, this is what will happen. This is who God is. This is who you are. And God, I pray that you'll just help us to have our eyes open today to who we are and what things can be in our lives if we just trust you. So Lord, we give you our time together today as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty, so uh, we're going to be talking about prophecy today, and prophecy, you know, that word prophecy has taken on a whole new meaning uh, in our day and age. Uh, prophecy has to do in our day and age as the second coming of Jesus, and that's all we talk about when it comes to a prophetic word. You know, what does the Bible say about Jesus coming back? Uh, when's it going to be? You know, there, there have been a million trees killed to write the books to tell us when Jesus is going to come. Yes? I remember back in 1988, no, 83, 1983, no, it was 88, it was 88, 
we had this little pamphlet that came out that said 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. And the date was September 10th. That's our anniversary. So I told my wife, we better go out the night before and have dinner, just in case we don't get to on the, our anniversary, being a facetious, because these books have come out for every generation. That's our concept of prophecy. That's our concept of, of what, what God is, is going to do for me. And Jesus coming back for his believer is for me to get me out of this mess. Yes? So we have to think about what the prophets really were about today before we get into Isaiah. What were the prophets' job really? What was their job? You know, their, their primary job it was to confront the sins of the people of that day. That was their primary job. Their first words were, the Lord has a case against you. The Lord has an issue with you. The Lord has a problem with what's going on in society today. The Lord has this going on. I see it sees this going on in your world, and he is confronting it today through me. This is the Lord's word, not my own. That's the prophetic word. Now today, if a pastor speaks with a prophetic voice, he can get in big trouble. Because the prophets are talking to the so-called believers. The prophets are talking to the Yahweh worshipers, not to the sinners of the world. He's talking to the holy people. You go to the Gospels. Who does Jesus get mad at? Does Jesus get angry? Well, he doesn't get angry. Well, he doesn't get angry, but it's a righteous indignation. We always use that word. But it's always at the religious people. When he runs into a sinner, he sits down next to him and holds their hand. Runs into a religious person who should know better, he lets them have it. You brood of vipers. The prophets were confronting the religious people. We have to remember that. Remember that. So when a pastor speaks in a prophetic voice about the sins of us, we don't like that. We don't like that. Do we? Well, neither did Israel. Didn't like it at all. Who do you think you are? Don't you know we're God's chosen people? They didn't like it. And that really explains to us a lot of the problems of human nature and faith. Human nature and faith. When we call ourselves children of God, that often comes down to, then I must be special. I'm better than those people. I'm better than those people. I'm better than those people. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do this. I don't do that. Therefore, I must be better than those people who do those things. And we have our pet people that we're against, right? That we're better than. The abortionists, homosexuals, all kinds of stuff that we are so much better than them. They are that enemy. They are that devil themselves. And yet Jesus sees them as people he died for. He sees us as people who should know better. We should know better. 
Just because someone sins or lives in a life of sin does not mean God has seized them as worthless. But sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. This is an issue that we see even in the Old Testament to this day. We can see it. It's a normal case of humanity, of humanity being humans. Hello. I think it's my brain rumbling. It's tired. Anyway, we can, we can handle this. All right, so the prophets were called to preach repentance and to call the chosen people to return to their covenant mission. He comes, they come and speak to the chosen people. They don't come to scream at the sins of the world. They come, they come to scream at the sins of the chosen people. And we don't like it. Yes, Lord? That's kind of what I felt last night when he said, I want you to change everything. I said, I've already got it ready. Change it. Okay. Three hours later. Oh. Yes, Lord. That's okay. Thank you. So what is their covenant mission? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abram, that's his name at the time, Abram, and he calls him and says, go to a place I will show you. This is a man who lives far, far away from the Holy Land. He lives in a pagan society. Lord knows if he's ever heard of Yahweh before in his life, probably never known anything about this God. He hears this voice, go, and he goes. Now, would you do that? Okay, so let's see. I'm an old man. You want to go to a place that I don't even know where it is. You want me to leave everything and go to a place I don't even know where it is. Mm, I need to get a little more affirmation here. But he goes. But he goes on to tell him, God told him, him, and I will bless you and I will make you a mighty nation. And here's a man and his wife who has no children and they're old. I'll make you a mighty nation, and I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and curse those who curse you, and all those types of things. But then the very key to the promise is verse 3, and I will make your family a blessing to all the families of the earth. That was the purpose of the call. Not to make a mighty nation, but to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. We translate that all different ways. Then your, fam- your, your, your people will be a, a blessing to all the nations, to all the people, whatever it is. But it's family. The word is mishpaka, family. Your family will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That was the covenant mission. That's what he called them to do. That's what he called them to be, a blessing. How does the people of God, how, how are we to be a blessing to the peoples of the earth, but to re- represent God to them? God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's goodness, all of it. Yes? Okay. I'm a little fired up. 
spent a lot of time on this last night. Anyway, so Israelite faith became self-centered on their position as God's chosen people. They became very self-centered. We are God's chosen people, therefore somehow we are special and better than all these other people. And we deserve better than all these other people. And God is on our side, not theirs. And God is for us and not them. And we're greater than everybody else, and we're smarter than everybody else, and we're richer than everybody else, and we're greater, and we, we are better. We're the greatest people on earth because God has chosen us. That became the attitude. That became the attitude of these folks. Chosenness is both a blessing and a curse. A curse is it often leads to a superiority complex and a loss of purpose for being chosen in the first place. The blessing is it provides opportunity to accomplish a mission, an incredible mission, if understood correctly. What is our chosenness to do? What is our chosenness supposed to mean in the world around us? We can never start with what does it mean for me? That's not the way God works. Even salvation is not for me. We talk about my personal faith, my salvation, my Jesus, my God, and he's there, all that. All that's true. But it's not about me. My salvation is about the world to make a difference, to be Jesus, to be Christ's ambassadors into the world is what we're called to do. And so, with this understanding, uh, we understand that chosen equals covenant in the Old Testament. Being chosen equals covenant. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This covenant, this chosenness, means that if I am with you, then you are blessed. And you do, you are, do have something that other people don't have, but I want you to take me to them and reveal me to them. I want you to be my people to the world. I want you to be different than everybody else, but not in a way that says I'm superior to you, in a way that shows them a different way of life. That's humble. That's gracious. Tomorrow we're going to talk about my favorite passage in Scripture in the entire Bible. I'm an Old Testament guy, of course. Micah 6, 1 through 8. What does the Lord require of us? But to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. That's it. That's it. That's it. And we'll go into more of that tomorrow. Favor often leads to self-separation from those one is to serve. Favor, if we have God's favor and I have favor, then, you know, really, if I'm special... You know, I had, a, I had a young pastor once come to my church, uh, and, and he was looking for us to support him because as God's chosen one, he shouldn't have to work. At the time he told me this, I was going to school full-time and working two part-time jobs and pastoring this little church. And I said, really? That's amazing. I've had it wrong all this time. That's crazy. 
Favor means we have more responsibility. Favor means I have more that I need to do. Favor means that I have something extra that other people need to have. We have to get away from this idea that somehow because, and I'm not picking on you, I'm picking on us as a church, as as Christians, especially in our country. I lived in Africa for two and a half years. I don't see these issues over there. (laughs) Okay? But we get this attitude that because we're at a holiness camp, somehow we're better than the people who are over swimming at the pool. And that's not good. That's not good at all. Okay, Israel took favor as promise of prosperity and safety. For them, law became an us versus them. If we keep the law, we are better than them. They're a bunch of law breakers. They're a bunch of law haters. They're anti-police, whatever you want to call it. You know, they're anti-God because they don't follow the same laws that we do when they don't even know what the laws are. But that was exactly what they did. Worship became ritual. If I have favor, then all I, gotta have, to, all I have to do is keep the law and keep God happy. So I go to church on Sunday. For them, it was Saturday. Come and take my sacrifice, do my sacrifice, sing the songs, pray the songs, and go out to dinner afterwards, and I'm done for the week. Just ritual. Nothing particularly important to us or to them. Just ritual. And they became half-hearted. Half-hearted about their worship. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament prophets, God says, I detest your worship. Why? I detest your sacrifices, but you told us to do them. I detest your sacrifices because your heart is far from me. You do, but, you're not, you're, but you are not are. That's not more good English, isn't it? I like good English. You're not are. You do, but you are not the person. You do the stuff, but that's not who you really are. And it's important. Abuse of position, of the poor, of the voiceless for personal wealth and profit. Justice was thwarted. If you read the book of Amos, don't read it too closely because you'll think you're living in the middle of it. Because much of what he talks about is happening all around us today. All around us today. Israel's faith became as dry as a desert. And these are images that, 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 that Isaiah uses over and over again. They're in the wilderness, dryness. There's a dryness. There's a, there's a wind blowing in the desert. People walking in the desert. The darkness of the desert have seen a great light, talking about Jesus coming. You know, uh, the desert, the desert, the desert, the desert, the desert, the desert. This is, when you write those, wrote these words, they're right before they're about ready to go to, to exile. And they're warning him. The prophets are warning them. If you do not turn back to God, and they said, we are with God. Look at us. Look how good we are. We go to church every Sunday, praise God. We bring our offering. It's supposed to be the best, but you know, how does, how does anybody know it's 
even if it's not the best. I bring, I bring it and say it is the best. You know, I, I, I say I give my, my, my tithe, I give my 10%, even though it's 3%, whatever it might be. You know, it, I, 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 I do what I'm supposed to do. Of course I'm good. Of course I'm good. God detested their worship because their hearts are far from me, according to Isaiah 29, 13. The effect of this wilderness was total disdain for their call. Their wilderness was not in their things or in their situation. In fact, during the time right before the exile was the most profitable time in Israel and Judah's histories. They, were, they had the most money, they had the most power. They had the biggest military. They had the greatest there was. They, in the, in the, that section of the world, they were cream of the crop. So the wilderness was not their stuff. Their wilderness was of the soul. Their wilderness was in their relationship with God. It was dry. It was, as Ezekiel will say, a valley of dry bones. A valley of dry bones. So the result of rejecting the call to repentance was destitution and exile, and the land became barren, literally. All hope was gone, the land lay desolate and empty. Instead of being a blessing to the other nations, Israel became like the other nations, called to be a holy revelation of the true one God, one true God. Instead, they became a nation in exile and shame before the nations. That God's punishment, literally, and we need to talk about this for a second too because we get this kind of messed up. We think God sent them in exile. In the Bible, God takes responsibility for it. But the curse that God puts on sin is not God doing zap with the Israelites. The curse is they decide they don't need God. They can just go through the the motions. They don't need God, actually God in their lives. They don't need God's leadership. They don't need God's strength. They don't need God moving in their hearts. They don't need God in any way. And God says, if you do not come back to me, then I will let you live that way. You don't want me around? Look how many times I have protected you in the past against the enemy. Look how many times I have saved you from the enemy. Look how many times I have beat the other enemy, other armies when they outnumbered you greatly. Look how many times. But if you don't want my help, if you don't want me around, you're going to face this great army on your own and you're going to be obliterated. Turn to me. You're crazy, Jeremiah. You're crazy. You're crazy, Isaiah. You're crazy. You're crazy. All you, you prophets are crazy. We're perfect. Look at us, how great we are. We are God's chosen people. We're the greatest nation on earth. You're crazy. You're crazy. Sorry, I'm getting excited. The world was a thirsty place where all peoples thirsted for shalom. Thirsted for shalom. The world was a violent place. I think I mentioned the lifespan of a, of a human being was about 35 years in those days, and most of it was because of military conquest. 
It was a brutal place. Famine hit constantly in that area, constantly, and would blast for years, and people would starve to death. And they would travel thousands of miles just to find food to eat, just to find a nation that would let them come in and find food to eat. They'd be invaded and, 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 and attacked. The Assyrians came and destroyed nation after nation. And people fled for their lives from these nations to other nations, only to be attacked again by Assyria in those nations. It was a mess. It was a dry and thirsty land. There was no hope. No hope in that time period. All seemed hopeless. In Isaiah chapter 55, and I forgot to bold this, sorry, I was, it was getting late. Isaiah 55. 55 through the end of Isaiah is a, a new shift in Isaiah's thinking. Some people call it a, 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 a second Isaiah, a third Isaiah, all kinds of things are, are mentioned. There seems to be three different sections in Isaiah where the thought process changes. Chapter 1 through 39, it's all about the sin and all about the, the confrontation. Uh, 40 through 54, 55, we have this, this image of exile and going into exile. And then 55 through the end of the Bible, through the end of the book, it's about restoration and what happens after and what happens after the exile and what God's going to do after they go into exile. And according to the, the dating of Isaiah's life, he's actually writing these things before they even go into exile. So this is prophetic word in that way. Okay? So he writes these things, the beginning of that section that's looking forward. Looking forward. Now I'll get you a little closer because I can't really see it because I don't have my glasses. So I'm going to move over here a little bit. Let's read it together. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread or your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you, not, you, you know not. And nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the, for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for what I, which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. 
Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Amen. Let it be so, Lord. Let it be so. Send your healing rain. Even send your snow. I'm ready. Send your snow. Water my soul. Because I'm tired. I don't know about you, I'm tired. I need that refreshment. I need that refreshment that, that God offers us. We need to unpack this a little bit. So we have the offer of life to a needy people in this chapter. There are four sections to it. God's actions toward covenant and life in verses 1 through 5. Israel must seek the Lord, verses 6 through 9. The purpose and power of God's word, chapters, or verses 10 and 11. And joy and transformation of life in verses 12 and 13. And so we'll look through these uh, real quick here. So in the first five verses, we have the Davidic promise. Anybody remember what the Davidic promise was? Yes, sir. That, that the Lord promised David that a son of his would be on the throne forever, would establish his throne forever, that a son of David be on the throne forever. Now, physically, that did not happen. In fact, there was a psalm, and I just had a brain fade and can't remember which one. There's a psalm that laments the fact that that covenant no longer exists, that David does not have a physical son on the throne of Israel. That ended with exile. That ended with exile. So who is this one who fulfills the covenant? God's covenant, God's promises do not fail. Who is this one? It is Messiah. It is Messiah. Jesus is the son of David who reigns forever on the throne. So the Davidic promise is not about the today. It's about the forever. You can't think about, okay, well, David had this son, and of course it was Solomon, and Solomon had this son, and, and then we had this son, and this son, and you know how Solomon came about, you know, had David and Bathsheba and that whole thing, and, and then they have another child named Solomon, and, and he's not supposed to be the king, but, but he becomes king, you know, and it just, it's kind of convoluted. We see this convolution all the way through uh, as far as, as who is king and who isn't king, but they're Davidic kings all the way to the end of Judah in 586 B.C., when Babylon comes and, and, and destroys the city. And that's it. That's it. Now, the, the, this begins with a word that the NIV does not even translate. It's hoy. Any sailors in here? Anybody in the Navy? Ahoy? We all heard that. Ahoy! Listen! Right? Listen! Listen! That's what hoy means. That's where the word comes from, is Hebrew. Listen. Listen up. Come and eat and drink at no cost. Can I be mean and say, that sounds like socialism to me? I shouldn't say that. Listen, Shema. Eat what is good 
And what is good is enough, sufficient for your soul, sufficient for your body, soul, and life. Come and eat what is real. As Jesus would say, come and eat the bread of life. And you'll never have to eat again. You'll never be hungry again. Eat from the bread of life. Eat what is good. In verses 3 through 5, the Davidic covenant revisited. David never lived up to these descriptions. The way David is, the Davidic kingship is described in these verses is of perfection, of, of excellence, of, of being everything, the ideal king. And David never lived up to this. I mean, you know David's story, right? You got adultery, you got murder, you got all kinds of stuff in his life. He always repents, though, and he always comes back to God. And of course, you know that, that my favorite, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 51, which he wrote after he was confronted for his sins with Bathsheba. Cleanse me with hyssop. Cleanse me on my innermost parts. It's a psalm we read as holiness people, that there is a sin that we commit, but there's also a sin that's inside of us that needs to be cleansed. David understood that, you know, but he was not perfect the way he's described here. Who is this Davidic covenant talking about in this chapter? Is it messianic? I believe so. The first inkling a messianic understanding within Isaiah not not we have the story you know chapter 9 with the with the birth of Emmanuel and uh, you know all the things we read at Christmas time but the idea of Messiah a Messiah begins here in 55 now 53 we have of course lots of we have lots of mentions of Messiah before this but the idea of this this David figure as Messiah I shouldn't say the first inkling of Messiah. This Messiah as the fulfillment of David. We have several what are called servant songs that relate to the Messiah. Of course, Isaiah 53 is one that we use a lot at Easter time. For he is wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Of course, it's there. I shouldn't, I, I misspoke, okay? What I meant to say was this is the first inkling of the Davidic understanding of Messiah. And so with this, we begin to understand what is happening after in this chapter. This is a messianic speak that's going on. The Davidic covenant, an eternal promise of a descendant of David to rule. We see that in 2 Samuel 7. Fulfilled in Christ, uh, this, this Davidic witness is a witness to the people king of all peoples, all nations under his rule. This is all mentioned in these verses that we see in these first five verses, that this is what this Davidic king will do, and this is exactly who Christ is. All nations come under his rule. All nations. Here we go with the nations again. What's with all the nations? It's all about us, right? Rule of all nations, of all nations. Then in verses 6 through 9, we have a call to repentance, forgiveness, a renewal. It says, seek, seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek. The word seek literally means to resort to or turn to. That you are at your bottom, you're at the end, you're at the, you're at the bottom of your barrel, you are in a wilderness place. 
resort to if you have to. If it's just a resort, I have no place else to go, I'll go to God. But seek God with all your heart. Turn back to Him. Call, which means to proclaim. Proclaim while He is near. Call on Him. Proclaim, God, I know that you are near. Help me. Help me. Repent, forsake, turn away, and God's chesed will be enough and freely given. You're in exile. You're in exile. Call out. Repent. Come back to me. A voice is calling in the wilderness. A, call, a voice is calling in the desert. This is, this is the, you know, again, imagery of, 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 of John the Baptist uh, used in the New Testament. This image of a, a voice calling in the desert. Call. Re- repent. The Lord God's love, God's chesed is still with you. His mercy is there with you. If you will just accept it and trust and pull it into yourself. In verse 9, God's ways are mysterious, merciful, merciful beyond human comprehension. Those people deserve what they get. Those people deserve what they get. Those people deserve what they get. God says no. You know, you probably heard the old saying, grace is getting something we don't deserve. Where mercy is not getting what we do deserve. God says no. If all people were turned to me, will come to me, they will be forgiven. Punishment and, and, and consequences, eternal consequences, do not have to be permanent. Consequences here on earth, as I said before, when we sin on earth, there are consequences, and there, those consequences are going to take place whether we're forgiven or not. You know, if I, if I murder somebody, God will forgive me, but I'm still going to be given the death penalty. Okay? But eternally, consequences for our actions can be forgiven and be removed as far as the east is from the west. That's a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. God's ways are mysterious. In fact, Paul talks about this in Colossians. He talks about it. And in this day, God has revealed this glorious mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This glorious mystery of God with us. How does that work? I don't know. And I'm glad I don't know because if I did know, I'd write books and sell them and become famous. And I don't want to be famous. I don't want to have favor. I want to be faithful and dependent that God's word is true even though I don't understand. It's okay. It's okay to trust the mystery. It's okay. Trust me. You are in exile, and you feel like, I mean, when the, when the Israelites, let me check my time, sorry. When the Israelites were in exile, they went through a process of consideration. They have really two choices. Either they, they confess to themselves and, and say to themselves, the whole thing was a farce, God doesn't exist, this is all a, a, hoo, a bunch of hooey, and we put our trust in the wrong thing, and here we are. The second way to look at it is, hmm, Perhaps we were wrong. 
Perhaps, in fact, the prophets were right. That is why we still have the prophetic books today. Because in exile, the Israelites realized the prophets were right. And so they kept the prophets' words. We wouldn't have them apart from being inspired by God for them to keep them. So their choice was to believe or not believe. To believe that they were sinful and repent or to go the other way. They decided on number two, but we'll find out as we see by the time Jesus comes along that he misunderstood again. (laughs) That they were wrong and therefore the prophets were right, but it's because we didn't follow the law strictly enough. And so by Jesus' day, they have made 600 and some laws just to how to keep the one law of keeping the, commandment, uh, keeping the Sabbath day holy. You know, thousands of laws that they had to keep every day to be holy people by Jesus' day. And Jesus has to confront that. Okay? So what he's saying is, trust me simply by faith, believing that I am with you, I love you, and I forgive you. Now go and sin no more. Now go and sin no more, is what the prophets are saying. Then in verses 10 and 11, we have God's powerful and purposeful word. God's word does not fail in its purpose. To a thirsty people in a wilderness experience, now think about the images used here. The images of snow and rain and water strike home. Think about it. If you're in a wilderness and you're thinking about the the wilderness of your life that you're living in and and the dryness of your spirit, and I know that all of us, if we're honest, there have been moments in our lives we feel like our spiritual life is dry. There have been times in my life when I, I felt like when I prayed, the words came out of my mouth and just fell straight to the floor. Maybe I'm all by myself. Maybe I'm a heretic. I don't know. But the fact is, we have moments of dryness because we lose track of what being a believer is. We get caught up in the, can you believe she's wearing that to church? We get caught up in the, I saw so-and-so coming out of a certain place. We get caught up in, boy, their children are awful. I'm so glad my kids are perfect. Boy, the pastor's children are terrible. You know PKs. We get caught up in all those things and our spirits get dry. And God says, let me send my water. Let me send my rain on your soul. Let me send my, 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 my snow to coat your spirit. Coach your soul as it slowly melts, it percolates into your landscape and becomes who you are. Let me do this to water you so that inside of you, as we see in these last words, well, let me just, God's word and mercy are the currency. This goes back to the beginning, is the currency for the food and water he's offering for free. We get this food and water through the cost, through the price of the mercy of God, through the price, eventually, of Christ on the cross. The mercy and grace, the bread of life, is free, freely given to us, yes? 
through the sacrifice of Jesus. Mercy. God's word and mercy is the currency that purchases our food and water. That's an amazing thing. I mean, a good, a good Israelite would have read those first words and says, nobody eats unless they work, buddy. Nobody works, eats unless they pay for it. And God says, mm, did you pay for your salvation? Did you pay for your favor? Did you pay for the, my chosenness of you? Did you pay for that? Did you? I don't think any of us paid for our salvation, did we? We didn't earn it. Can't earn it. Try awful hard sometimes. But we can't. So in the last two verses, joy and transformation of life, we have joy and shalom returning to the world. The images of nature call back to the creative power of God. The mountains burst with the song. Trees clap their hands. Isn't that amazing? Trees clap their hands. Reminds me of a big windstorm and all the limbs are going like this, you know. It just, the trees clap their hands. Thorns and bristles are replaced with lush plants. Isn't that beautiful? I hate thorns. I hate, I hate that ivy that grows in the trees that's got all the thorns on it. I hate those things. They will search you out. You walk within three feet of it and they stick to your clothes. I don't like them. I want the junipers. I want the myrtle trees. I want the beautiful trees. off. And God says, this is what I offer you. I will take away the thorns. I'll take away the bristles in your life and give you lushness of life. Beautiful life. A place where you can look out and say, wow. Wow, look at God's creation. Look at God's beautiful creation. I love walking on this, in this place. I get out of my car and come around that corner, big trees, a shade. I love it. I love it. You know, it's beautiful. This will be the Lord's eternal, enduring act that will change the world, and that is the coming of Christ. It is Christ who gives new life. It is Christ that causes green grass to grow in our souls. It is Christ that loves us past our sins to forgive us when we repent and call on his name. It is Christ who floods our soul through his Holy Spirit that moves in us to say, God, you and you alone do I want in my life. Lord, I surrender all of this garbage that I've tried to do to make myself happy. I, tr I give up all this garbage i tried to do to make you happy. I give up all this garbage that i tried to do to make everybody else happy. I give it all up, God, and ask you to take me, use me, and help me to be the person you call me to be for a blessing to all the nations of the world. God, I need you. God, I need you. That's the call of holiness. God, I need you. More than anything else in this world, I need you. My wife and I do not have green thumbs. We could take a plant that's been established for years into our house, and it's dead in three days. I don't know why. I don't want to be the gardener of my soul. I want God to be the gardener of my soul. 
I want him to plant the seeds, grow the grass, the trees, the beauty of it all. I need God. I need God. It's a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. So the lessons we learn, God love, God's love, God's love offers, well, that doesn't sound very good. I must have been getting tired. Excuse me. God offers love freely. God offers love freely. God calls humans into a loving relationship. God sees our needs and others fulfill, and offers fulfillment. God renews dry souls. God's word will not fail in its purpose. God's will is for renewal of sinful humans and all of creation. The son of David is the instrument of salvation, which is Jesus Christ for us today. That's the beauty of this chapter of Isaiah 55. When you feel dry in your soul, pick up your Bible and turn to Isaiah 55. When you need to know you're not alone in your dryness, turn to Isaiah 55. And God will help you as he's helped me time and time again. All right, tomorrow we will look at Micah 6, 1 through 8. And the topic is the love of God requires justice. And again, justice is a word that scares us sometimes because of the political images that have been given to it. But the Bible is full of the word justice. So we want to unpack it in a proper way. Okay? All right, any questions or anything? I know we're probably past time. Everybody okay? All right, I have a few more copies today. Looks like everything else is gone. Does anybody need any from the previous weeks or days I should say does anybody have one I can make some more all right all right well good thank you have a good day take care